Welcome to Life Lessons with Dr. Steve Shell. For 20 years, Dr. Steve's 30-minute radio program, Life Lessons, was heard throughout the United States. Committed to comprehensively teaching through entire books of the Bible, Pastor Steve pulls out the deep, eternal truths in each section of Scripture without skipping over the challenging passages. He applies what is learned clearly and practically so that we're inspired not to just be hearers of the Word, but doers also. Would you open your Bibles to John chapter 2, verse 13 is where I'll start. We're going to talk about cleansing the temple. I did not understand how important the gospel of John is to our, to our knowledge of Jesus. Without John, you would not know basically the first year of Jesus' ministry. The stuff we're reading about now... His uh, coming there to the Jordan River, not only being baptized, you see that in the other Gospels, but the process of him coming back, of John saying the Lamb of God, the disciples beginning, uh, following him to Cana to the, to the wedding. Uh, we'll see now they then go down to uh, Capernaum for, for a few days, all of that sort of thing. And then he goes to his first Passover. You wouldn't see any of this. You wouldn't know what happened, which... The, the other Gospels, and I really, I really was checking this out this week. It's amazing. The other Gospels will, will take his Galilean ministry, what he did up north. And then they will go down to the last Passover, basically. There'll be mentions here and there, but not much. But John shows us actually four different trips to Jerusalem. He shows us this whole first year, which makes things make sense. I mean, have you ever wondered... You know, you, you have in the other Gospels, Jesus walking by the sea. He looks up, here's these fishermen, and he says, come, follow me, I will make you fishers of men. And they all go, okay. You know, and you go, what is that? I mean, it's like out of the blue, isn't it? But we know he's known them for, for a year. These, these you know, most, all, in fact, the boat guys, they, they all have known him since the Jordan River. They all followed him up to Cana. They've been, no, yes, they went back to work so they could support their families. This isn't, he isn't somebody they don't know. What he's saying is now's the time, full time, you follow me. And then what did he do, by the way? Gives them this big catch of fish so that they can put it in a live well and feed their families while they're gone. That's what that was about. It wasn't just, a, like, isn't this cool? Look, I can make fish. It was, it was, I'll feed your families, follow me. I'll feed your families, follow me. With John's perspective, we, all of that begins to make sense. You know, the fact that the, you, you'll find right off the bat in the other Gospels, uh, people ang- from Jerusalem coming down and furious at Jesus. You think, how did that happen all of a sudden? How did they even know about him? Read the Gospel of John. They know about him because of what we're going to talk about today. <laughs> Big time. Here we go. Father, would you open the word? We love your word. It is life to us. Jesus, your the rabbi. You're our teacher. You're our Lord and Savior. And we want to be like you. We want to follow you, just like James and John and Peter and Andrew. We want to be discipled by you. And so, Lord, would you open our eyes to see you, to follow you, to understand, and to let you speak to us today. We just put the 2,000 years between us out of the picture. We want you to teach us today. I ask for grace that I'd get out of the way and we'd hear you. In your name we pray, amen. All right, I'll uh, start at verse 12. After this, he went down to Capernaum. This is after, after the 
turning 120 gallons of water into wine. Uh, he went down to Capernaum, and he and his mother and brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Uh, it looks like almost a toss-off verse. It's like, why did he even tell us that? There's nothing about it, just they went down there. But look, this, this point right now, at this very moment, is when Jesus transitions from being the eldest son of a family, the breadwinner of his household, all of that, to being full-time ministry. He has just turned, he's done his first miracle. His brothers grew up with a normal eldest brother. It's quite clear that Joseph has passed away somewhere early. And, and Jesus is the eldest. So he's, he's a construction worker. He's a, probably a stonemason, carpenter, strong as an ox. He's been supporting his family all along. And he's now leaving. Can you see the trauma? Yeah. And, and then to add to that, they've gone to a wedding together as a family. And he just turned 120 gallons of the water out in those pots into wine. How did you do that? I mean, there's a whole lot to talk about. John doesn't say it. He was there. He just says Jesus and his mom and his brothers and the disciples stayed a few days in Capernaum. I think this is him explaining what's happening now, who he is and what's happening. And we know, by the way, the brothers did not believe. Okay, verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was near. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem And he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the the money changers seated at their tables. And he made a scourge, a whip of cords, and drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their their tables And to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away. Stop making my father's house a place of business. Would you say, stop making my father's house a place of business? Stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. In other words, they're seeing what he did there as an act showing him to be Messiah. What is surprising when we read this account of Jesus cleansing the temple, is the lack of resistance by the merchants. Does does that strike you as odd? Where are we? We're up on the Temple Mount. I think it's about 36 acres. This, This is going to be the outer court of the Gentiles. It's a huge area. We go there when we go to Israel. This time they're having troubles there. I don't know if we'll do it again this year, but who knows? Hope so. But we go up on this thing, and it's, it's, it's a big, flat, stone-paved thing, and then it rises up a bit, and that's where the temple building itself was. But it's surrounded by this enormous, flat, paved, huge area called the Court of the Gentiles. And so it, they, had brought, they had brought these stalls for animals, oxen and sheep and all of this, into this big court of the Gentiles, and it filled it. I read one place, uh, one said 3,000 sheep. Man, I mean, come on. And you know what sheep do. You know what oxen do. This place smelled like the county fair. This is really, really odd. So he walks into this thing, all this, this is a big deal. It's Passover. Tens of thousands of pilgrims are there. 
The place is crammed with people. This isn't some off week. He just happened to stroll by. This is Passover. So the streets are full of pilgrims. People are buying these things, uh, these sheep and these oxen. Uh, you can buy them out in the, in the marketplaces. But, but the, recently, the priesthood has brought it onto the, onto this, right, onto the Temple Mount. And so there's tons of people. One guy, one guy walks in and, and, and starts pushing all this off the Temple Mount and nobody tackles him. Nobody fights him. You, <clears throat> for some reason, a large number of people allowed one man to walk in and totally disrupt their business activity. One would have expected a fight to break out or temple police to intervene, but none of that happened. And though Jesus was const, uh, pardon me, certainly a strong young man, having worked for years as either a stonemason or a carpenter, no matter how strong or angry an individual may be, a group of furious merchants could have stopped him. But none did. And I believe the reason is because they were ashamed of what they were doing. Moving these stalls and tables into the court of the Gentiles was a recent and still very unpopular decision. Did you hear that? It may have been the first year of it. Uh, they actually, there's the, it's the, he did it 40 years before the fall of Jerusalem is when, when, when this high priest, Annas, as I'm about to tell you, actually installed this. So this is not the traditional way of doing business. This is absolutely a new phenomenon. Annas, the high priest, had decided to do this, and Josephus, the historian, described him as a, quote, great hoarder of money and very rich. Annas is the appointed high priest. He's the old man behind everything else. But the Romans require different high priests, so he appoints, he had five, I think, four sons and a a son-in-law. Son-in-law was Caiaphas. But he's the guy, the power behind the throne, as it were. He's the one really running things. And then he has these kids out there to keep the Romans happy. He's the power. He moved, these merch, uh, he moved these merchants onto the temple grounds as a means of generating personal revenue. And it quickly became a principal source of income for his family. In, that, in, in time, that co- court would come to be called, quote, the Bazaar of the Sons of Annas. Not that Annas was bizarre, but the Bazaar of of the sons of Annas. And after the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, Annas was thought to be the one who caused the destruction of the temple. He became vilified, rightfully so, by the way, by the rabbis later on going, why did God let his temple collapse like this? How could this have happened? What caused this? What did we do that brought this? And they went, this is the guy and this is the thing they focused on. He defiled the temple. He brought sheep and oxen and business into the temple courtyards and, and, and outraged God, and he brought it down. So, so I want you to see the climate in which all of this took place. So what Jesus did was understood as a prophetic act. Everyone understood why he was doing it. And many, even among the religious leaders, were already troubled by a guilty conscience. 
It's possible Jesus had a crowd of supporters cheering him on. Now, I'm just speculating, but you could see some people going, yeah, every time a, temple went, a table went over or something. Without John's gospel, we would not have known about these activities which took place in the early season of Jesus' ministry. Knowing about these things provides some important perspective on certain events which, which otherwise seem very sudden and unexpected. An example of this is the amazing amount of hostility religious leaders from Jerusalem felt toward Jesus from what appears to be the very earliest days of his ministry. Are you beginning to see why they felt that? But because John shows us that Jesus actually went to Jerusalem at least four times. How many times? Four times. During those years, the first being the Passover we're reading about now, we understand why. We discover that upon his first visit to Jerusalem, Jesus immediately clashed with the religious leaders. When he entered the temple, what he found there deeply grieved him. Stalls full of animals for sale and tables set up for money changers who were exchanging foreign currencies into the coinage, which was considered appropriate to be given as an offering. The huge paved courtyard, which surrounded the actual temple structure itself, had been turned into a noisy, smelly marketplace. This area within the walls of the temple complex was called the Court of the Gentiles. It was intended to be a place where non-Jews or Jews who were ceremonially unclean could come to worship Israel's God. From Abraham's time onward, God had made it clear that he chose Israel to serve a purpose beyond themselves. They were to be a source of spiritual blessing to the rest of the world. It was prophesied that the nations of the earth would come to that place to learn about God, to seek his guidance, and to worship him. So a court had been built to welcome them. Do you follow that? This court is a prophetic in its own sense. Read, read Isaiah. Read the prophets. The, the whole thing is that God was going to cause the Gentiles, they would come unto the mountain of the Lord, and they would call on the God of Israel. And, they, and he would, and he, and he would the, the unclean, there would be multitude of camels. Do you know what that means? All the Arabs will come. Huge numbers with their camels. A multitude of camels will cover you. And we go, ha, 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 isn't that silly? No, they're all coming to worship the God of Israel. You follow that? So they built a court for them. And they built a court with a whole idea that God, Israel was supposed to be a priesthood. He said, I will make you a, a holy nation, you a priesthood unto me. Why? So that you will draw the rest of the world to me. This was never about just, I like you and I don't like them. It's I'm going to bless you, teach you, you then teach them. It was always meant to be that. Did you follow? Because it's the heart of God, isn't it? It's the heart, always has been the heart of God. When Jesus entered that courtyard, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves. Coin dealers were also sitting at their tables. His response was to fashion a whip out of some small ropes, and then he used that whip to drive the sheep and oxen out of the area. After that, he poured the coins which the money changers had collected onto the ground and then turned over the tables where they'd been sitting. He didn't use the whip on the doves, of course, but of, to those who owned those cages of doves, he said, in effect, Pick these things up and take them out of here. Don't make my father's house a place to sell merchandise. Jesus' action was actually another sign. Like turning water into wine, which confirmed the fact that he was the true Messiah. 
Among the most important things the prophet said the Messiah would do when he arrived was to turn Israel's heart back to God. So when his disciples saw what happened in that courtyard, they thought of one of David's psalms, Psalm 69. It's a lament in which David complains that he is being unjustly persecuted because of his faith. At one point he says, for zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. David said he was being mocked because he passionately loved to worship God. He loved to be in God's presence in the tabernacle, which he had set up on Aruna's threshing floor. Did you know that David was a, was a true worshiper? He didn't just sort of go to temple and go through the routines. This is a man who would dance before the Lord. This is a man who would lie before the Lord. This is a man who, who, he had that Ark of the Covenant, you remember that whole episode, brought to Israel. He doesn't have a tabernacle set up, but he puts a tent over it. And he has it near, primarily so he can worship. And, and he comes and he will, he will sit before the Lord. Uh, and he was mocked for it. He, he, is, he wrote his own worship music. That's what you're reading in the Psalms. These are his worship. So this is a passionate, singing, music writing, dancing man who gives his heart to the Lord and his friends. He says, even those in my household have mocked me. I'm the song of drunkards. They laughed at him. The fool with his passion. And he said, the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. I love you too much. And they mock me for it. And the disciples, as they watched Jesus driving that, 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 that bazaar out, out of the courtyard, they said, he's just like that. He's the Messiah. Look at him, the zeal for the house of God. And now, a thousand years later, Jesus, one of David's descendants with respect to his humanity, single-handedly cleared the courtyard. It was, a, it was Passover with tens of thousands of pilgrims filling the temple. And what Jesus did was a nation-shaking call to repentance. Israel had forgotten its assignment. Tens of thousands are watching this, and it is a prophetic call to repentance, and the nation knows it. Cleansing our temple. God designed the temple in Jerusalem so that there would be a space to welcome people who wanted to know him. Did you see that? He designed the temple in Jerusalem so there would be space to welcome people who wanted to know him. But Israel had forgotten why it was there. As time went on, it appeared to be wasted space that could be used more productively. So they filled it with buying and selling. But, what, but that was Israel, and we might ask, what does that have to do with us? We're Christians. It's true, as Christians, we don't have a building we call a temple anymore. We're now supposed to worship the Father in spirit and truth wherever we go. Yet the fact that we don't go to a physical structure called a temple doesn't mean there isn't one. The Bible says what? We have become his temple. This building is, 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 a, is a beautiful shelter for us so we don't get rained on. It's, it's nice. It's, it's warm in the winter. It's, it's cool in the, in the summer. Hallelujah. We don't have to be out uh, in the elements. But it's not a temple. 
It's not a temple. That doesn't mean the presence of God can't be here uh, as he can in your home. He can wherever we are. But it's not a temple. This is not that. The temple is us. Look, let me get something. Let's, let's get this really clear. And I'll, I'll say it here some, but you are, if you are, if you have received Christ, you are to be a temple of God. Romans 8, 3 to me is a huge verse. Jesus explains something profound, or Paul explains something profound about Jesus there. He says, for what the law could not do, weak as it was in the flesh. In other words, the law, the rules, the good rules, couldn't make us obey God or walk righteously. God did, sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Say sinful flesh. He didn't say human flesh. He said sinful flesh. Jesus had a body like ours. And there's a point to this. Not just that he was tempted in all ways like as we and had to experience that. But it says, and, and, and then he says, as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. So the spirit of God can now dwell. And then he goes on and makes it really clear in us. Before Jesus died on the cross, you, a human being, no matter how righteous they were, no matter how devout they were, was not a suitable place for God to dwell. Their flesh has been used for sin. Their flesh is unclean. God cannot dwell there. You following this? You and I, we sin, don't we, with our flesh, with our bodies, your words, your ears, I'd ask for hands, but last night, not everybody raised their hands, and that was disappointing. I said, how many have sinned, you know? And like, about four, yeah, never mind, no. It was much more than that, I was just kidding. But, but, but the point being, God is, a holy God isn't going to live in a, in a contaminated building. He's not going to come in an impure place. So, when Jesus died on the cross, he took on our sinful flesh. And he died not only for the sin that separates me from God, the things I have done, the judgment I deserve. He even died for my body, which is why I'm resurrected, by the way, and you too. He died for my body so that the Holy Spirit of God can now come and live within me. Before that, the Holy Spirit would come upon. Now he comes within. Do you see the difference? So that you actually, now, it's not just talk. It's not just talk. We are a living temple. It is within us that the presence of God abides and does not leave. Even when I do sin. Even when I certainly don't deserve it. But because Christ has redeemed my body, he does not leave me. He is permanently with me. Isn't that wonderful? Yeah, so Jesus, when you hear him talking about what God is going to do with the Spirit, he's saying, out of your innermost being will flow rivers of living. Out of where? Out of your coily, out of your belly. For you now are a temple of God. All right, with that in mind, why don't we read this uh, quote together from Peter. You also, as living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood, 
to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. And then Paul tells us, read with me again. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. So if I'm a temple of God, Is there also a part of me that is intended for others? A part of my life, my energy, my time that God wants me to use to help others to know him. Do you see see what I'm saying? God, in designing that temple and in the way that was laid out with this great court of the Gentiles, a great space that was made for other people to come and find God was built into that temple. I'm suggesting that God builds into us his living temples, the same space. There is in your life, in your time, in your energy, a place God has designed for others. You too have a court of the Gentiles. The question is, do we do the same thing they were doing? Do we fill it with other things? If so, then the example of Jesus cleansing the temple speaks prophetically to me. It reveals a spiritual principle that still applies to me today, not just to the merchants in that courtyard. He forces me to ask myself, have I filled up with other things the space? And by space, I mean the time and the energy, the resources, even the passion that God gave me. If so, what are they and how do I get rid of them? The gift of space. God has designed each of our lives so that we too will have a court of the Gentiles. The Bible says, God has ordered our steps and numbered our days. In other words, he has a plan for each of us, but he doesn't force us to walk in that plan. This if I use the word predestination, it gets, it gets me and everybody else nervous. What, what, when that word gets used, it's often used this way. God picks out who he's going to save and who he doesn't want. That is blasphemous. And it's a, it, never mind. Get off that horse. All right. You know what I think about that one. I mean, it, it's just terribly wrong. But when you respond and come to Jesus Christ... And you surrender him. Did you notice how Paul said it? You, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. God actually thinks that. <laughs> and, and what he says is, once, you, once I say yes to Jesus, if I will walk in faith and obedience, I'm not a slave. I mean, I, I, it's an attitude, but I'm not one. He's made me a son. If I will walk in obedience, there is a plan predestined for my life. God has laid out your footsteps. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he has prepared when? Beforehand that you should walk in them. See, if we get at this in our head, the idea of purpose or direction for our lives, it isn't a matter of finding, you know, sort of figuring something out for heaven's sakes. It's a matter of bringing our life into alignment with his plan. 
And if I bring my life into alignment with his plan, I begin to walk in the footsteps that were preordained for me. He begins to do things through me. He begins to open doors. He begins to minister to people. All kinds of things change when I surrender to the Lordship of Jesus and seek him by the Spirit daily. We must choose to participate in that plan by obedience and faith. However, if we choose to do so, we will enter a path that has been planned for us. And a part of that plan, one of the precious gifts he desires to give each of us is the privilege of helping others find him. You have been called to eternal purpose. You have been invited by your heavenly father. Now, you've been almost compelled, you've been called, you've been commanded, quite frankly, by your heavenly father to join him in his redemptive work. No one is exempted. He does not think of it as dirty work, which he sticks on you. He considers it at a high honor. How blessed you and I are that our father has drawn us into his saving work. In fact, he ins- it, it rises and falls on our obedience. It, it really does. One of, one of the terrible truths in all of this is that when you and I are faithful, more people come to the Lord. And when you and I are not, they don't. And I don't know what to do with that. I, I don't even like it. But when I choose not to do what he asks, I can hurt things and I can hurt people. And so can you. So can you. When I say no, others suffer. It's just like a bad father. If I'm a bad father, boy, I can hurt my whole family. There's repercussions of what we do. So he has set apart a space for this. And the danger is that we too can fill that space with other activities. We might do exactly what the high priest did. We might use that space to make more money or fill it with entertainment, vacations, hobbies, shopping, or media. It's not, there, it's not that these things are wrong in themselves. In fact, I think life needs some of each. What's wrong is that we put these, those things in the space designed for others. Did you follow this? God is not mean. He's not cruel. He's not ungenerous. He's trying to give us joys of life. But every one of us has a space designed for others. And when we put those things there, we're doing exactly what was happening in that temple. Some people say, I want to serve others, but I just don't have the time. And yet when you watch them, you, you might see all sorts of extracurricular activities going on. It becomes obvious that it's not so much that they really have no time available, it's that serving God is not a priority. They think of it as something they would do after they've done everything else first. And if somehow they ended up with extra time and energy left over. In that case, they'd be glad to serve others, so long as they weren't trapped into any long-term commitments, which might conflict with their other routines. Not trying to be mean, but we, are, but we just, and this is, this very event is very prophetic, is it not? And if we realize what he's saying by it, Jesus evaluates our, our lives too. And I, I didn't see what, how, what this was until yesterday at five o'clock in the morning. I was struggling with this passage. I didn't know where it went. And if I woke up five o'clock in the morning and the Holy Spirit showed me. 
And it's causing me to evaluate my own life. I think each of us has to look and say, how am I using my life? Not, can't I have, sure I can have vacations. Sure I can have hobbies. Sure I can do things. But have I given, put into the space that the Lord is asking me to give to others? Have I put it there? Because if I have, we know how he feels about it. We know exactly how he feels about it. The real issue is indifference, by which we mean a lack of concern, motivation, or energy for something. That task seems hard, unpleasant, or boring, so we want to avoid it if possible. We'd prefer to use that time for something we enjoy. So does serving God, making space for others, mean we have to stop doing all the things we enjoy? No, it means we need to start enjoying serving God. <laughs> See how simple that is? We can solve that in a moment. You know? If we really don't, it's a symptom that other interests have moved into that special space. What was meant for others is now being used for self. Much of life is necessarily taken up with practical matters. To begin with, we sleep away about a third of it, if we're fortunate. And then we have to work so we and our family can eat, have clothes to wear, and a place to live. But this space in our temples is not where the problem lies. These are necessities. And unless God calls us into full-time ministry, which, by the way, is a form of very hard work, providing these things is an important part of our call to serve him. On top of sleep and work, there are chores to be done and a day of rest, which God said we all need to stay spiritually and physically healthy. And somewhere in this list, there needs to be time spent with family, both physical and spiritual family. So when we look at our list, we might think there can't be any time left. But there is. Unless, of course, I'm a mother with small children or a single parent with two jobs. I mean, you just have to be real here. The proof is that we usually can find time to do the things we enjoy. Because we watch for opportunities and plan for it. For most of us. If there is no time left, it's a matter of the heart. I can say I have no time for such things, but I do have time to plan for a, a Seahawks party. And I can spend all afternoon uh, spending time there. Well, come on, Pastor. I, don't blame me. This is Jesus. He likes all the teams, yeah. I'm not saying it's wrong. But, but don't, don't play a game. Don't say, I have time to do fantasy football. I can spend enormous amounts of time in that. I can be watching for, uh, television four hours a day. But I don't have time to spend an hour and a half on a Wednesday night with Awana. No time for that. I'm busy. That's just a game. It's nonsense. It's an issue of the heart. This is about eternity. Brothers and sisters, if you will give the part of your life and the energy, the passion, and who God has made you, if you will give that to other people, and it may be an hour and a half, you can be amazed what you can do with an hour and a half. Or maybe you'll teach a Sunday school class. Maybe you'll put on a vest and be, be one of those, those guys that is doing security on a Wednesday night, creating a safe, peaceful, healthy place so we can be reaching hundreds of youth. It's amazing what's going on. Don't say you're not needed. 
Oh, yes, you are. And I don't mean just here. Outside the church, God will show you where. But there is a part of you that belongs to them. It isn't even yours. It's his. And he wants you in that court of yours for people seeking God. And he will use you powerfully if you'll give it to him. What should, I, what should we do if we, pardon me, if as we're watching Jesus cleanse the temple in Jerusalem, we realize he needs to cleanse our heart as well? The answer is to welcome him in and let him arrange our priorities. But before we pray that prayer, we should be warned that he hasn't changed over the years. He'll deal with the clutter in our hearts the same way. It will be sudden. He did it all at once, you'll notice. Not a few stalls and tables every time he came. He didn't just come in and tip over something. He'll draw a line around the space, time, energy, resources, or passion in your life that belongs to him and demand that everything else be removed. This could be a radical readjustment. There are things that sometimes you just say, I enjoy this, but I can't do that and, and this. And I'm going to just have to set that enjoyment aside. We'll do it someday. You, you know, one of the places for even for me, it's, it's not just what don't I do, it's how long do I do it. There's points when you can get tired. You can get, you can get weary. You can say, I don't want to keep doing this anymore. And yet, God says, no, more space. More space. Just keep making space for people to find me. It's a real, it's a costly thing, isn't it? But isn't it beautiful? Do you believe in eternity? I do. And I believe that there are people who are going into eternity apart from God and will spend a time in, in, in misery apart from God. He's not torturing. I don't think there's a fire burning people. I think it's the Shekinah fire of God. All of us are virtually enveloped in it. But there are people who go into separated from God in the agony of their heart, and they will be in that forever. And I cannot live with that passively. I can't just say, hey, psh, whatever, you know, have a good life. I have to do what I can do. I can't make everybody come to the Lord. There are people who just, you know, they just don't want to go there. Okay, I got to move on and find somebody who, who does. I can't waste my time arm wrestling with you, unless, of course, you're my family. And then I pray for you till I, you know, till, till I'm dead, you know, or you are. <laughs> do, do you know what I'm saying? I mean, family's family, and you just do that, and and uh, good things happen, by the way, when you continue to pray. But if you and I have the eyes, that's why Jesus was angry. That's why. That's what this was about. It isn't him sort of saying, "This is a pristine temple, and you're bringing dirty, smelly animals into this place." What a violation of holiness! It's not that kind of kind of <laughs> theological pickiness. It's not that. It's going. You. This is a place for the nations of the earth to find the living God. They're perishing. You fill it with oxen. You make money here. You don't care. Any Gentile walks in, they can see how much the God of Israel wants them. Right? Any broken person, who, and people did come to Jerusalem. Anybody can come from Africa or Asia, come in here and 
They can see how much you care. They can see what the God of Israel thinks about them. You've just said it loud and clear. Broke his heart. That they lost their heart for those who don't know him. He will be violent. Jesus drove the merchants out. He didn't politely invite them to leave. He was engaged in spiritual warfare. What was happening in that courtyard was preventing people from finding God. People's eternal life was at stake. A place meant for others was now being used for selfish pursuit. It will be complete. He didn't remove some of the stalls and tables to make a little more room available. He didn't say, let's clear this area over here so that if any Gentiles show up, they could stand there. He cleared the whole place. So this will hurt. (laughs) Everything in that space has to go. I can't say just adjust a few things. God will show you. Every one of us has to seek him on this. This is individual. It is between you and him. No one can... What, what, what God's asks of me, what he asks of you will be different. They will all be asked, here's the space in your life I want you to give me. Some people, you really are working so hard and doing so busy, you will have a very small slice of time that God says, now I want that for ministry and here's how I'm going to use you. Somebody else, you're retired. You could virtually... Last night, we actually had a, a, the transitional pastor was a non-salary licensed pastor. You've heard me talking about that. We've decided here not to let money become the issue of who gets, who's called into the ministry. And so we're beginning to license men and women who have full qualifications, go to school, do whatever training. But when they do that, we're giving them a license. If, they're, if they have a clear calling, they've got a key to the church. They have a desk. You know, if they're working here, some of them are chaplains. Uh, But one of our non-salaried licensed pastors was doing the transition in the service. And it was so cool. So some of you, I've got a whole, I think we got like seven, eight, maybe more. And a bunch of them are retirement age. Instead of simply going to Arizona and playing Pinochle. (laughs) Now, I love Arizona. My son's down there. But that's not the point. Pinochle's the point. No, (laughs) I have no idea how to play Pinochle. I just know it's a funny name. Okay, I don't. Anyway, but you can go and waste those years or you could be going to school. You could be rising up. I've got a bunch of retired guys sitting now in the office running ministries like the benevolence ministry and all kinds of stuff, seeing lives change. You can use these years, not just watch TV. This could be the most fruitful I'm not, this is not exaggeration. It's not silly. You could be the most fruitful years of your life. These would be the years that have a huge spiritual impact. You're tired. You're old. You got to drag your bones to, the, to wherever you're going. And then God uses you powerfully. See, he doesn't care what the, what the tent looks like, does he? The Bible talks about the tent going, getting worn down, but the inner man getting stronger and stronger, and stronger. You and I are walking on the Lord. We're not, maybe my body's getting sore, but my spirit's getting stronger, not weaker. Pulling weeds. This is the parable of the sower. You know the parable. Jesus describes a man, a farmer. He's got a bag of seed on his hip. And he, he's going out and he's sowing. And he's a, he's a very bad shot. Uh, it's, 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 it's quite, it's, it's a real truth in it. 
this, this farmer's taken handfuls of wheat or barley seed, and he's th- sowing it. And he throws it on everything, if you notice. It lands on the road. I mean, that's a bad shot. A lot of farmers could miss the road. It, it hits the road, and, and the, the birds come and pick those things up. They don't even get, they don't even sprout. It hits the, it, it lands in the rocks beside the road and between that and the field. And the th- the sh- it's shallow little soil in there, and so some of it pops up quickly, but then it dies because it has no root, no water. Some of it lies, lands in the, th- in the weeds, in the thorns. And the th- those weeds grow up and compete with it. So the, the moisture and the food and the nutrition is all being sucked out by the weeds and the thorns so that that wheat doesn't have anything to grow in. And some of it lands on good soil. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell among the thorns. And the thorns came up and choked them out. Hear then, said Jesus, the parable of the sower. The one on whom the seed was sown among the thorns. This is the person who hears the word. And the worry of the world. And the deceitfulness of wealth. Notice those two things. The things of life, just the pursuits of the world around me, the busyness of of daily life, of needs, of whatever kinds of things, and the deceitfulness of wealth. Wealth is called deceitful because it it promises you fulfillment and all of this, and it never gives it to you. It's like a carrot in front of a donkey. You know, you go pursuing this thing, but you'll never reach it. You're looking for something wealth can't give you. You'll choke the word, and it becomes what? unfruitful please notice Jesus didn't say the seed which fell among the thorns died did you see that the others died the others the first one didn't even sprout the one in the in the shallow rocks sprouted but died died quickly it died the the the, the faith whatever was there was gone but the one that fell among the seed didn't die it simply remained alone it didn't reproduce Its energy was taken from it and given to other matters of daily life and the pursuit of money. He calls those things that drain away our time and energy so that we have nothing left to invest in other people, thorns, or we might call them weeds. This parable is teaching the same truth as the cleansing of the temple. Whether you picture it as driving out the merchants We're pulling out the weeds. There's a part of each one of us that belongs to those who are lost. That really moved me when I wrote that line. There's a part of each one of us. Say that with me. There's a part of each that belongs, that belongs to those who are lost. There's a part, say this, there's a part of me that belongs to those who are lost. There is. There is. God has given a part of you to the lost. And if we give it to them, we'll bring forth some a hundredfold, some 60, and some 30. Would you stand with me? Holy Spirit, we, we just stand before you. Every one of us, I'll stand first in line. And we'll say, Lord, 
here's our life, here's our temple. Have we filled that outer court made for others? Made to serve you. Made to be reproducing. To be taking that which is given to us and multiplying it into the life of others. However we do that, however you've designed us and whatever your predestined plan for us is. But have we filled that place with other things? Has the court of the Gentiles been filled with stalls and tables? Oh God, if we have done so. We understand that this is not just a little fix. Jesus, you came with a, with a whip and you drove those animals out and they just pushed off and went out that, off that courtyard and the tables you pushed over and you poured out the coins. You said to those with the doves, get them out of here. Get those things out of here. Don't make my father's house a place of business. Father God, we give you, we offer right now, come and inspect the heart. Inspect our lives. This isn't guilt and we're not earning our salvation. It has nothing to do with being saved or lost. It has to do with our obedience, our discipleship, our fruitfulness. We do not want to be that grain of wheat that grows up to one stalk and remains alone. We want to be 30-fold, 60-fold, 100-fold. We want others who are perishing, others who are broken and lonely, others who need to be brought close to God to find him through us. Would you grace us with the eyes to see and the ears to hear to know what it is you're asking? If you are willing to pray that prayer, it is a dangerous prayer, as I pointed out, but you say, Lord, I just have at it. This isn't about guilt at all. It is about the Holy Spirit inspecting. And if you want to take something from me or move something or ask me to take and use, use uh, my time in another way, I will do it. I will do it. I am yours. Would you say, yes, Lord? Hear us, Lord. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, please click the like button, subscribe, and share it with a friend. For more information, just head to our website, lifelessonspublishing.com. That's lifelessonspublishing.com. There you'll be able to order many of the books Pastor Steve has written.